Hi, this is Brent Skousen, the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you are about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught his Old Testament course. We really are fortunate to have these recordings, although at the time they weren't anticipated to be released publicly. As these lectures were recorded live, they are unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you are following the Come Follow Me curriculum from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have tried to coordinate each lecture with this week's lesson, although there may be some overlap. For those interested in the text Brother Skousen and the students are using, it is published as The Third Thousand Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen, and it is available at bookstores or online at skousen2000.com. And if you prefer listening to the text, there is a new audio version just published this year, which you can download from Amazon, iTunes, or audible.com. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Yes, question? Where did the name Hebrew come from? Any uh, suggestions? Where did it come from? From Hebron? Okay, any other thoughts? Any other thoughts? He was known as the Hebrew in the Bible. He was called a Hebrew, wasn't he? Um, anyone from the area would be considered a Hebrew. Uh, this will give you your answer. Uh, it is not exactly known. And uh, there, are, there have been lots of studies conducted on it. I think most of the, um, uh, the commentaries will say that, uh, that originally the word came from Eber, who was a great-great-grandfather of Abraham, and Abraham was a direct descendant, uh, and Eber, uh, as such, his people were called Hebrew, but Abraham really picked up the, the descent and the heirship to it. In any event, the Jewish people will tell you that anyone who's a descendant of Abraham, as was suggested, is Hebrew. Actually, there probably are a lot more, but they've lost their identity. So anyway, the, the, the line of descent of the priesthood is identified with the Hebrews. Another question now. Another question? All right. We're going to go pretty fast here. We have an examination coming up shortly. And uh, let's see, we got up to uh, 182, uh, no, to, to um, 10.11, so that's 180, yes, we're over to 2.28, so we have, um, we will have uh, Thursday's assignment, and then we will have our test on Tuesday, is that all right? Week from today, okay, and we'll go, we'll have it over to 2.55. So stay right with me because a number of the technical questions on the test come out of today's assignment. Um, one of the things that we have in our text which is not in most of the texts is the fact that Moses was very close to Levi and Joseph. Uh, he did not come down another four centuries. Um, Paul himself uh, warned us what the real situation was and scholars have been very confused as to what to do with the book of Judges. If uh, Moses comes clear down around 1200 BC, how can they account for the several centuries before we had Samuel arise? So they've just kind of ignored it and walked away. But we now have it quite certain that the, the Bible itself is literally correct, um, that Moses was actually the grandson of Levi that there was only a very short period between the death of his, fa his grandfather and himself, 60 some odd years, and that uh, 
the slavery in uh, uh, Egypt was a relatively short time before Moses was born. So they were in they were in Egypt how many years? How many years were they in Egypt? Pardon? In Egypt. In Egypt. Yes, 430 in Egypt and Canaan. How long in Egypt? Didn't you pick that one up? 215 years in Canaan, 215 years in Egypt for a total of 430 years from the time that Abraham received the covenant until Moses marched them out. Okay? Now I'd keep that in mind if I were you. They're very easy to remember. 430 is the total divided in half. Uh, which is a very convenient thing for the Lord to have done for us so that in 301 we could memorize it easily. Um, 215 years in each. And uh, for some reason or another, because of one passage which says they were 430 years in slavery, <clears throat> that has become very confusing. And uh, Paul said, actually, it was 430 years from the time Abraham got the covenant until Moses brought them out but you see it was 215 years after Abraham got the covenant before Jacob even went down into Egypt. So now we have that clarified. Everybody kind of got that in straight? 215 years only in Egypt to produce a population of 3 million from 75 people? That's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? So I scheduled, I, I set forth uh, an extrapolation here on page 190 of Israel's population explosion and showed you how that if 75 Israelites who came down into Egypt combined to make 37 couples and had 10 children per couple, this is what would happen. And then we go right on up and in 215 years you'd be pushing very close to a population of 3 million. If you have big families, it's amazing what you can do. Not counting any women? Doesn't actually say whether they were counting men or women. Uh, of, uh, of the, that might well be. If it were, that'd give us a little bigger ante to work with, wouldn't it? You got a good point there. We'll go back and take another look at that. Okay, fine. Now, was Moses Jewish? No. What was he? He was a Levite. What do we call them today? What are they called today? There are a few of them around. What are they called? Cohens. Cohen, meaning priests, meaning those who were in line to be priests. See, you know, Cohen. C-O-H-E-N? Yeah. You know Mickey Cohen? Okay. Now, I also put in, in here the lineage so that you'd be sure and, uh, and see where Moses um, fits in. His mother was the daughter of whom? His, um, his uh, father was the grandson of whom? So he's pure Levite. He really is. And it's kind of interesting that uh, Jochebed... Uh, uh, his mother married Amram, uh, her nephew. Then Amram married Jochebed, his aunt. And on his mother's side, Moses was the grandson of Levi. On his father's side, Moses was the great-grandson of Levi. In fact, on his father's side, Moses could say his mother was his great-aunt. <laughs> you stay with that, did you? <laughs> 193. When your mother is your great-aunt, that's really something. Okay. From his father's time. All right, now... We all remember the story, the, the initial story, of uh, these slave camps up along um, uh, the coast here on the east branch of the Nile. 
Ramesses, which was a very famous and old name in Egypt. Um, they had, in fact, uh, the city Ramesses identified much, much earlier in the days of Joseph. Uh, this is being made into a treasure city by the new pharaohs who have come up from Thebes, 400 miles south, driven out the Hyksos, and subjugated the Israelites to slavery because um, they wanted to use them subjugate them and use them for the building of their great cities, which takes a terrific amount of manpower. These people who came up Hamitic. They seem to have been, uh, uh, we don't know whether they were Hamitic or not, but they were traditional Egyptians. May have been in a mixture. You see, it's homogenized now. For, um, for some time now, we've been having uh, 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 Libyans come in and become pharaohs. We've had some from uh, the island of Crete come in and become uh, pharaohs. So these dynasties are thoroughly confusing, and when you go to the Cairo Museum and see these men all laid out, you can see that the early ones are Negroid, and then they change completely. And except for their features, it's impossible to tell because they all have white hair. The embalming fluid turns all their hair white. So even the Negroid peoples have uh, blonde hair. It's kind of a white yellowish color. And uh, I was kind of astonished at that, and I was looking at some of these mummies and uh, one of the curators come over and he said uh, you have a special interest uh, one of these and i said well, i'm just curious about their hair oh don't don't think about the hair we don't know what the original color was embalming fluid turns all hair that color so all right thank you that helps but well, it's kind of a blondish yellow color but in the early ones you can see the the negroid features rather plainly so anyway they came up from thebes 400 miles south of cairo drove out the Hyksos, and put them in slavery. Now, uh, to their amazement, they were averaging, as, as I'd suggested in this prognostication, a hundred, um, uh, excuse me, ten children per family, and, and that probably, uh, my grandfather, who had three families, uh, he had 23 children. So, um, ten, we thought, was a nice conservative figure to go by. And what did the Egyptian pharaoh then say about uh, the Hebrews? They're about to do what? Exceed us in number, yeah, they'll be mightier than we. Now this tells you something, that when the Egyptians came up from here to conquer, this really wasn't a tremendously uh, big population probably. And um, so they ordered that the male children be killed. Why just the male children? Why not the females? That's the primary purpose, to keep the manpower, uh, military, part of it weak and then the women make good bricks anyway real good brick makers okay so they, they got a real good thing going and now they told the um, midwives who were Hebrew to kill the children the male children as soon as they were born just kill them um, their original order was to do what with them yeah and why what was the alibi of the midwives yeah, they're, they're so healthy, you know. Um, they send a little boy for us to come. We get there. It's all over. They hid the baby. Sorry. No, no dead babies today. And um, then the order was that um, uh, uh, the, the children should be killed by what means? Drowning in the crocodile-infested river. And... Um, uh, and they depend now upon whom to uh, report? Their, their own people. 
All right, so when this boy is born, they've got informants all through the Israelite camps, uh, people who will uh, cheat on one another just for a few extra favors. People become terribly depraved, as we found in the prison of war camps. Uh, if they're not idealistically based, they really collapse fast. And so this baby is born. How long were they able to hide him? Three months, and then you, you can't keep a baby hidden very long, a little squalor. Um, so um, that's when they put him on the river. What, what was the name of his sister? Miriam. What was the name of Mother of Christ? Miriam. Miriam. And through its, the Greek angleized version is Mary, but her name was Miriam. And um, so she watched, and uh, when the this famous occasion occurred when the little basket was observed by the daughter of the Pharaoh and dragged out by. She was right there to suggest that she knew a, a woman who would nurse the baby until he was weaned and then be brought back, and, and that happened. And so Moses went into the custody of, of this woman with, uh, with no background at all on his own people. And so far as we can tell, very little contact with them until he was 40 years of age. And then Paul says that for the sake of Christ, he went back to his own people, which would suggest what the Book of Mormon epic tells us, that Christianity and the worship of Christ and the understanding of Christ was well known among all the ancient peoples, but stripped out of our present Bible so that it does not reflect it. But in all of the teachings and writings of the Book of Mormon prophets, it's very evident. And uh, in any event, he lived those 40 years. And the one incident I wanted you to be sure and remember, because the Bible refers to it with no details, is the story by Josephus that sometime after Moses became mature, there was a terrible uh, military action against Egypt, and out of the high mountains, nearly uh, uh, some 3,000 miles away in Ethiopia, uh, we had these troops, that's like coming clear across the United States from New York to attack California. They came all the way down the Nile River, and... Uh, threatened the entire Nile Valley. And in order to, um, I mean, somebody had to lead out and, and do a better job than their existing generals. And so the priest said to the Pharaoh, why don't you get your daughter to let her adopted son fight uh, because he's been trained all these years. And so the Pharaoh agreed and Moses was put in military command, Josephus says. And he did a rather astonishing thing. He went out onto the a desert with his troops, and what did he take with him? Uh, this, uh, the, the long-necked ibises. He took these ibises out, uh, and uh, they're just great at killing snakes. And uh, on these deserts sometimes, when they once become infested with poisonous snakes, armies were just scared to death of them. And so these birds went along, cleared the path, the troops went through, and, and got clear around. We don't know which desert it was, but they got clear around so they could cut off all the logistics of the Ethiopians, and they just panicked and raced back home as fast as they could, with Moses taking the Egyptian troops with him back to the capital, high up in the Ethiopian mountains. And a river comes um, together, like so, and the, the city was built here so that if you're going to attack, the, the two rivers practically cut it off and you've got to attack from back here which was impossible too, be, uh, too well fortified so you've got to uh, you've got to cross the river and attack against uh, high walls and so the daughter of the king
king of Ethiopia saw Moses uh, preparing his men, preparing for the assault, saw what a noble, handsome, good-looking fellow he was, and like Joseph, all of the ancient records say that he was an extremely good-looking fellow. And she fell in love with him uh, from across the river, sent her maid over to propose marriage. And according to Josephus, Moses saw an excellent opportunity here to end the whole thing, so he said to the girl, I will marry you, which was a very ordinary political arrangement in those days, providing you get your father to open the gates so there'll be no bloodshed, and I guarantee you, I give you my word of honor, I will consummate the marriage. So Josephus says it happened. We know nothing more about her. No children. He didn't take her back to Egypt with him uh, by all appearances. And later Aaron and Miriam take great offense at this because he had married an Hamitic woman prior to the time that he joined the Israelites and was taught the gospel, etc. Did the Lord hold it against him? No, he didn't. In fact, he got very angry with Aaron and Miriam for criticizing him for this marriage. Now, when the Ten Commandments opens, that she was not Hamitic? You mean this woman that he married? This Ethiopian woman? Does he say how, uh, how he derived that? All right, good. Because everything that we know of um, would, would indicate that she was um, objectionable for some reason to the Israelites. And so the record itself calls her Ethiopian. Yeah, there was a big secret. Yeah, well, that's, that's Hollywood. Oh, yes, everybody knew he was Hebrew. Yeah. In fact, the priests were constantly after the Pharaoh, get rid of him. He'll go down there and lead those people in insurrection. Josephus says they all know he was Hebrew. That was just a nice little Hollywood sidelight. Um, but you'll, if you remember the Ten Commandments, it opens up uh, with uh, uh, Seti, which isn't even the right Pharaoh, um, uh, watching, and uh, you can hear the shouts, Moses, hooray for Moses, and so forth. Everybody's shouting for Moses, and you see him, uh, as only Charlton Heston would, Rings in hand, you know, and very dramatic, driving up his chariot. He's coming back for the great triumph, and um, the people all shouting, and he looks up at the balcony, and he sees Seti and his daughter that he's in love with, and he waves to them and so forth. You don't have any idea what the background is here, and DeMille never told it. But this is uh, his return from the conquest of Ethiopia. You get that picture. But when the captives come in, you have a real fine, handsome Watusi uh, warrior from the Ethiopian area with a very beautiful uh, negress by his side, his sister. And as the two of them march up with all of this loot and everything from Ethiopia being brought in behind, um, you see Moses sort of smile at this sister. And that's, his, that's the concession that DeMille made to the Josephus account. That's the girl, you see. That was, that's how he worked that in. In any event, there, it's kind of interesting the, some of the details they worked into that story. Now, that's how Moses became the national hero. And I just wanted you to have the background because the, the um, only facts that I'm aware of are those from Josephus and those incidental to Miriam and Aaron criticizing Moses. Right. Because you see, the, the, the pharaohs that were there when Joseph came down were what? They were Hyksos. They were Semitic and very anti-Egyptian. So the, the, this pharaoh that comes up from Thebes, you see, he's traditional Egyptian. 
He hates Hyksos and Semitics. So you got a whole whole new ball of wax. Well, it was a military conquest, you see. None of the Israelites were soldiers. And it would have been very easy uh, to take over that uh, nomadic, uh, excuse me, that, uh, uh, that shepherd population there of the Israelites. They would have been very easy to conquer. As a matter of fact, the way the Egyptians were conquered by the Hyksos, the Hyksos were just desert people, and they came into the Egypt and conquered them with no resistance. But now there was really a, a good fight here between the Hyksos and the traditional Egyptians, and as soon as they took over, they subjugated the Israelites. Did I see another hand? That's not prepared. Sure can. Yeah, that's that's the story of history. Now, when he was age forty, let's see, he was a he was a prince prince of Egypt. How long? He was a shepherd. How long? He was a prophet. How long? Isn't that easy? Okay. At the age of forty, then um, he had this. Um, inclination to join his own people and there's nothing in the Old Testament really to give us many details but in the New Testament we have Paul's statement that he yearned to be back with his people he realized they had a religion that he had not been taught he counted his testimony of Jesus Christ of greater worth than um, being a crown prince he could have been the next Pharaoh as a matter of fact Josephus says the Pharaoh had agreed that since his daughter couldn't have any children this adopted Hebrew would be the next Pharaoh which the priests of course just hated and um, so as he went to his people saw their terrible condition and watched an Egyptian beating a Hebrew the ruthlessness of it and everything just enraged him and uh, Moses was a powerful man in his own right at the age of 120 it says he was a man of great vigor and so here he is at 40 I mean he's right in his teenage prime and so um, he took on this fellow and in the process when the skirmish is over um, got a dead Egyptian on your hands is this murder this murder what's murder It's killing a human being deliberately and with intent to kill. Uh, does the Old Testament call um, a, a death resulting in a quarrel and a fight murder? It is a homicide, but it is not murder. Because um, this can happen. I mean, two men are struggling. Uh, one uh, pops his neck or something and it's all over like that, or they're struggling and one gets his... A head bent under, etc., and a little push and a shove. Uh, the next thing you know, he's dead. In any event, this fellow was dead. And Moses hurriedly buried him. Didn't think anybody saw him. That uh, is, anybody who would tell. And then, to his amazement, the very next day, when he finds two Hebrews quarreling, reprimands them. One of them has the uh, uh, sassy audacity to say, um, You're going to kill one of us too now? And then he knew that everybody was talking about his having killed an Egyptian. So he knew that it was just a question of time until there would be a warrant out for him and the Pharaoh would order his, perhaps his death. And that's exactly what happened. So he took off and he crossed this desert. And I want to tell you that's a desert to cross. And that's just as green and beautiful along that East Nile. And that's worse than the Mojave. And you go up here, and I've got this just a little bit too high. It's actually about right here. And uh, then he had to cross this desert, and this one is even worse. This is the Sinai Peninsula, and down at the, down in here are the Horeb Mountains, 
uh, with Sinai being the highest peak, and Sinai coming from a Hebrew word which means bush, and that gets its name a little later on. He comes around here and crosses over to the Aqaba Gulf of the Red Sea, and then probably along this side, although the, the Midianites were on both sides, who are the Midianites' descendants of? Who's their great ancestor? Are they Arabs? Abraham through whom? Keturah. Keturah. Descendants of Abraham through Keturah. And um, he's exhausted when he first arrives at the, um, at the well, you remember. Uh, yes? Why are they called Midianites? That's a good question. It's, what, what was the... Who are they descendants of? One of the sons of Keturah was named Midian. Okay. Oh, let's see. I'd have to estimate. It's about, um, I'd say about 400 miles. And that's off the top of my head. I'll have to. The question was, how far did he walk? And the answer is about 400 miles. Okay. I'm just going to have to try to discipline myself to remember that because you've... Now, when he got there, here are these seven girls getting ready to water their goats and their sheep. And here he is, an Egyptian, exhausted, ragged, tired, weary, gets a little drink, and uh, just kind of watching these girls fill the troughs. And they get them all filled, and he thought the sheep were going to come up and drink, and lo and behold, here come a bunch of hoodlums. And uh, they bring the, they chase the girls' sheep away so theirs can come up and water. They're going to take the girls' water. Well, this isn't kosher. It isn't even Egyptian. I mean, we don't allow this. And he takes his rugged staff in hand, and he waded into them, and uh, they found them. this fellow was capable. In fact, Paul says he was taught in all of the skills of the Egyptians, and chasing away uh, uh, hoodlum shepherds was a very, that was an Egyptian specialist. So, their specialty. So the girls got to water their flocks and took them home, and their father, who was the high priest of the Midians and had the priesthood directly from the days of Abraham, um, said to the girls, Why do you get home so early? And they said, There was a nice man down at the well, an Egyptian no less. And he chased all of our relatives away, who were always getting using our water. And, uh, well, he said then, uh, where, where why, bring him up, come on. So the seven girls run down and bring him up. That was nice. And as I mentioned in the book, this is the first man who came to dinner and stayed 40 years. Uh, he really moved in. And um, uh, Jethro liked him, and, um, and Moses liked the general setting. He wasn't going to go anyplace. Might as well stay around for a while. And he ended up marrying Zipporah and also getting the priesthood from what was his name? Jethro. 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 All right. For 40 years then he has it fairly quiet. And, um, yes? Yeah, all their names have meaning. I'd, and I'd have to look that one up again. I, the question is, does the name Jethro have a special meaning? And if it does, I don't now recall it. But all names had meaning in those days. That's why it was so easy. You get a name like Cleon, for example. I mean, you got to say it over several times. He was a Greek general and so forth and ran Athens into, into a real difficulty and so forth. But the name means something if you just happen to know what it means. 
and it's, it's often given to uh, to sons who are when an older child has died and the word means comforter or one who comes to replace and so forth so if you know the meaning of something skousen means woods and most Danish people who emigrated had the good sense to change the name to forest or woods that you could remember ours is the only family that I know of of all the skousens in Denmark that didn't change the name as far as we know we're the only family that didn't change the name you go into Copenhagen and hear all, a long list of Skousens. The mayor of Copenhagen, he's a Skousen. In America, they're all woods. Forest. You get a name like, that's that odd. I mean, uh, doesn't mean a thing. All of these names meant something. That's why it was easier to remember them. One lady said in Ireland, she says, you know, of all the missionaries, yours is the name I remember. It, I had to work so hard on it. I said, well, maybe it's an advantage after all. All right. But Jethro, I don't know the, the meaning of. If, if there is, is a meaning or what the meaning is, I've forgotten. Now, we have this remarkable experience of the bush burning on Mount Sinai. And in the test, I may ask you what Sinai comes from. And what does it come from? It has always been known as the mountain of the bush. From the most ancient times, the Semitic peoples have always called it the mountain of the bush, meaning the mountain of the burning bush. So Sinai comes from this word Sinai, which means bush. And um, as he goes up to the mountain, he's had 40 years as a shepherd now. He's how old? 80 years old. That's modern math, but that's what it is, 40 plus 40. 80 it is. And he goes up to the side of the mountain and sees why the bush is not what? Consumed. Consumed. Why it won't burn up. Long time. That's a high mountain. And he wondered why, what would be burning up there to begin with and why it didn't go out. And he got up there and came near to the bush and then all of a sudden he heard the voice, Moose. He said, here am I. And he says, draw not hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moses slipped off his sandals and he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses was so frightened by this unexpected announcement that he turned his face away lest he look upon the glory of God and die. But the Lord knew his fear would diminish as the interview progressed, therefore the Lord wasted no time on preliminaries, but went directly to the purpose of the visitation, which told Moses what great news. I'm now going to bring the Israelites up out of Egypt and bondage and slavery. Oh, isn't that glorious? Miriam, Aaron, his mother, 40 years he apparently hasn't seen them. And he's going to bring them up and give them a wonderful land of promise that was given, promised to Abraham, the land of Palestine. And then came the, th the lightning bolt. I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Oh, that changed everything. Just everything. All oh, this was terrible. Oh, he said, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Certainly, um, uh, the Lord said, I will be with thee. Uh, but um, Moses said, Nobody will believe me. I'll go down there and say, God sent me to lead you out. No, he said, I'm a, they want to kill me down there. I couldn't do it. Uh, he said, well, and who I say sent me as a matter of fact? And then you had that famous statement by the Lord. You just tell them that 
I am something. I am that I am the self-existent one, something. Uh, but then we had uh, Moses still hesitating, and he said, they, they'll, they won't think you appeared to me. I won't be able to convince them. What's that you have in your hand? My shepherd's staff. Thrust it on the ground. Threw it down. Mm, mm, mm. Pick it up by the tail. <laughs> That's for real. Put your hand into your bosom. Take it out. Dripping leprosy. Put it back. Pink flesh. Now the Lord says, I will go with power with you. Just don't worry, I'll be, I'll be with you. And you can do this and one other sign. What other sign? You can make water into blood. That they may know that I am with you and by the power of God you come. And then Moses made the mistake of saying what? I still think you better send somebody else. He said, you know, I, I don't speak very well. I'm a very poor speaker. I just can't say it. Awfully hard for me to speak. And the Lord was so disgusted with him. He said, well, then I'll raise up Aaron, your brother. I'll send him here and he'll go with you. Oh, well, that's nice. All right, well, we'll do it then. Finally convinced him. That, that, that's such an interesting conversation. Now, notice how long it took the Lord to convince Moses. Uh, in 800 B.C., about 800 B.C., the Lord had another prophet he had a lot of trouble with. And um, it was the same kind of situation. It scared the wits out of him. The, the, this nation of Assyria was over there, and uh, they had a habit of anybody criticizing them and so forth. They tear out your tongue and crop off your ears and impale you on sharp poles or skin you alive and so forth. And the Lord told, it, told Jonah to go over there and tell them they'd better repent or he'd destroy their city in 40 days after they got the warning. And uh, Jonah knew they deserved it. Yeah, he wanted them uh, to kill, be killed. But of course, Nineveh was that way and Jonah went that way. It just scared the wits out of him to go there. He didn't stay around like Moses did. You see, Moses talked with the Lord. Jonah didn't. Jonah just took off. <laughs> so the Lord had to um, intercept him in the middle of the Mediterranean <laughs> and have him hauled back to shore and burped up again so he'd get on his mission. <laughs> You mean this um, passage here where it says, um, it says, put off thy shoes from off thy feet. In the temples you get the same thing, you see. When you go into a sacred place, why, you wear special clothing and you remove your regular shoes. And it's just symbolic of putting off the things of the world and coming into the sanctuary of a sacred place. Now, yes, the question uh, raised is um, in the Ten Commandments uh, when it, uh, they would refer to the, uh, the mount called Sinai as the mountain where God dwelt, as though it were part of local superstition, that's what you, uh, yes. Uh, we don't know anything about that, that was another Hollywoodian, Hollywoodian they put in there. and. Um, 
from the Bible, the mountain apparently was nothing uh, until this incident, and thereafter was known as the mountain of the sacred bush. So um, I would assume, based on the scripture, that's all we know. I think the other is just tradition. He, uh, in all actuality, he did go up, you say? No, he did go up. Yes, the Bible says that uh, the only reason he went up on the mountain, and if you see that mountain, you wouldn't want to go up there for any other reason. That is just a great big hunk of barren rock going up for uh, 1,500 to 2,000 feet. And there's nothing on the whole mountain except one little tiny saddle where there's a spring and... Uh, a few nice bushes and so forth, and a cave where Elijah will later hide and where Joshua will, will wait for 34 days while Moses comes down from the mount. But the rest of it is just absolutely barren rock. And uh, today, if you want to go up it, they usually take you up on camels or donkeys. It's quite a strenuous trip, especially for an 80-year-old man. Did I see another question? There was a question over here I didn't repeat about the shoes. Uh, being taken off the feet of Moses. Why did he remove his shoes? And uh, my answer was because whenever we go into the sanctuary of the Lord or into the presence of God, there, that's one of the symbolic things that is done and is part of the temple service, uh, which goes along that way. Now, we have this marvelous vision that Moses had sometime between the burning of the bush and before he went down into Egypt, God gave him this marvelous tutoring on the gospel so that he would realize more about God and more about himself. Nobody has that but us. We owe it to the world to share that with them. That was probably originally the first chapter of the book of Genesis that is now stripped out because the whole purpose of that chapter is tell us to tell us how we got Genesis. And because men didn't know how Moses got Genesis, you can read any Bible commentary you may wish, and always you will find that Genesis is presumed to be the recording of the oral traditions of the Jews about their origin. And in no sense is considered to be authentic, inspired, scriptural material. So all of a sudden we find out that it not only is scriptural and inspired, but dictated by the Lord in its original form. One half of it is missing from our modern Bible. Up to the first six chapters of Genesis, 50% of what we now have in the book of Moses is not there. So it's pretty exciting to have this material. And in the first 2,000 years, I was trying to recapture a lot of that material and get it into the story of the creation because we now know so much more than any of the other scholars in the world know and we owe it to them to tell them what the Lord has shared with us. Well, he had this experience <clears throat> of seeing God face to face, which he didn't at the burning bush. And he saw all the vast array, apparently, of this galaxy in which he saw many earths inhabited and which he saw that mankind was uh, just something that's out there everywhere. There are millions of these planets, and they're inhabited planets. And he just it was absolutely astonished. And uh, then all of a sudden it disappeared. God removed himself from his presence, and that's when Moses says, Oh, I didn't get to ask any of my questions. And that's kind of interesting that he would kind of talk to himself. i gotta, I, I got to do this again. I've got so many things I want to ask about. And he said, I never realized how insignificant I was before. I am nothing. 
I'm nothing, just nothing, compared to all these vast things God has done. So that was a very humbling experience. And uh, we'll go into that now next time, and if you'll finish over to uh, the end of this next assignment, then we will be ready for our examination on Tuesday.